This is the fourth lecture in my fourth year as Gresham Professor, my fourth and final year. And the title of the whole series, if anyone's not been before, is For Courtesan, Queen and Gallant, the guitar in England from Henry VIII to Samuel Pepys. And my topic today, the fourth lecture, as I say, is called An Englishman with a Guitar Abroad. But before we go any further, let me introduce the player who's going to play for us today. Ladies and gentlemen, Ulrich Wedermeyer. Well, I begin today amidst what I think I'll have to call mounting disaster. The year is 1642. The kingdom is adrift in the ocean of diverse factions. Of course, we're on the verge of civil war. King Charles has left the capital for his safety. This is not the time, you might think, to be thinking about the delights of music, the pleasures of guitar playing. But when Roger North looked back upon this time from a vantage point much later in the century, he thought that civil war had actually encouraged music making. He says, he writes, many chose to fiddle at home rather than go out and be knocked on the head abroad. Well, it's not easy, as you can imagine, to assess the truth of that remark made in Roger North's very homely manner. But in 1644, so well into the struggle, the great poet John Milton argued that a parliament that was determined to license printed books might as well try to authorize, and I quote, all the lutes, the violins, and the guitars in every house. Well, I don't know what you think. Perhaps I'll find out afterwards. But that doesn't sound to me like a decline in the fortunes of the guitar in the year that the royalist and parliamentary forces clashed at Marston Moor. Well, I am going to take you abroad today, but as always, before traveling, there are some things to do at home. And I'd like to stay here for a little while and pour over the archives with you a little. I've got some facts for you today. Nice, crunchy facts, fresh from the archives, which I hope you'll savor as much as I do. You'd be surprised, I think, to discover just how often there are references to guitars in, let's say, the privy purse accounts of the nobility or upper gentry. That is to say, in the little documents where they record their own day-to-day expenditure. There really are a lot of references from the time of the Civil War and beyond. Now, some of the earliest are found in the records of Rachel, Countess of Bath, who had a London lodging in the elite district of Lincoln's Inn Fields. An entry in her general account book for 1639, here's a fact, notes a payment of two shillings and sixpence to the guitar man. While the next year she lent money to her sister-in-law, Elizabeth Boucher, I quote, for a guitar and a book and strings. Elizabeth was then 19. That's fairly late to be starting the guitar in this period, by the way. And there are similar payments in the records of John Manners, who was the 8th Earl of Rutland. His expenses at London in 1642, it is really extraordinarily interesting 
to read through the shopping lists of these people and to see the things they bought as they went about their, their daily business. You can imagine how, how interesting, how fascinating it can be. And in 1642, he'd paid more than four pounds to the guitar man, together with seven shillings, for the mending of an instrument for my lady Frances. That's his daughter, Frances Manners, who was then barely six. That's about the time when young women were set, young girls were set to begin their study of the guitar. Well, going a little later, your handout, the first page, shows some extracts from the unpublished accounts of the Greville family. And they were drawn up for the family's uh, residence of Brook House, which was in, in Hackney. This was an archive that had so much material in it that after a while I started to get bored with it. You can imagine that when you turn up on one of these um, needle-in-a-haystack jobs as an archive, perhaps having to travel from where you live, perhaps having to book a hotel for a couple of nights because there's lots of material to look at, you can sometimes go home just completely empty-handed. You don't find anything. That's happened to me more than once. But this time, in the um, archives in Warwick, there was so much that it became tiresome after a while and I stopped writing it down. But here, anyway, is an example of some of what was there. So we've got payments there for 1645 to 6. To Mr. Coleman, whom we do know as a, a composer of the period, for eight months, that's eight months of tuition, and then paid to him, you see, the sum of two pounds for a guitar, notice the rather Italianate spelling with a K, then to him for a book and strings, and then to Mr. Coleman for six months, teaching, mending, strings, and stringing guitars for Lord and Master Robert. Go on to 1646 to 7, and there's this unnamed Frenchman, presumably a Frenchman, called Monsieur, who's paid, as you can see, 15 shillings for a guitar. That's a fairly low price at this time. Then the next one, uh, two pounds, 12 shillings and sixpence. Then for a guitar case, and then for a ribbon for the children and guitar strings. It, the material in that archive just went on and on and on. It really was quite wonderful, really. Well, three guitars, you can see, were purchased for Robert Greville. And to judge by those variations in prices that take us from 15 shillings, which, as I say, is pretty cheap, even by the standards of the periods, up to £2, 12 shillings and sixpence, they differed in size and quality. And you can see that teachers were secured, including one who, as I say, was presumably a Frenchman, since he's called Monsieur. And in addition to giving lessons, these masters sourced the instruments, supplied strings or cases, and undertook various kinds of maintenance. They were versatile people. They had to be. For example, doing uh, various mending jobs when new frets or strings were needed, and perhaps even doing big jobs like taking a soundboard off and rummaging around inside to repair something that might be broken. Well, before we go any further, here to remind us of the guitar music of the period is a French courant for the guitar, such as Greville's Monsieur might have taught and played.
certainly, Uli is playing, a, I think, essentially an 18th century guitar, an original, but he tells me that dendrochronological, that's easy for me to say, dendrochronological analysis reveals that there is material of the 17th century in that guitar. Well, you may have noticed how often those accounts mentioned a book. That's really quite strange. Although a great deal of the music guitar players played in 17th century England is lost, much of it must have been written down once. The entries in the household accounts refer to a book so very often purchased at the same time as the guitar and strings. The Grevels bought a book and strings. John Manners paid for a book. Well, these books were, would have been choirs, assemblies of, of paper ruled to order in a stationer's shop to suit the requirements of whatever musical forces they're going to be intended for. So they could then be stitched into a simple cover or properly bound if they were going to be sold as a real book rather than loose sheets. Nothing that can be straightforwardly described as a guitar book survives before the 1660s. One may yet come to light. So as I've often said to you, to those of you who own, as I'm sure many of you do, immense country house libraries, please do have a look. You never know what might be in some drawer somewhere. This is no joke, really. I mean, National Trust houses and other great country houses do contain very substantial libraries. That It is, of course, an immense labour to catalogue. And up to a point, it remains unknown what could still be hiding. Well, the account books show various members of the nobility being able to buy guitars without difficulty, but there's actually no trace of anybody making them, even in London, before about 1683, when Edward Chamberlain praised John Shaw, a well-known maker, in fact, for his skill in building guitars, violins, viols, lutes, and harps. Well, does that mean that the guitars in use before then were mostly imported? Well, I think some undoubtedly were. In 1644, Eleanor Wortley, the Countess of Sussex, lamented a guitar that she'd obtained in Paris, but, and I quote, spoiled, which I am very sorry for, for it was thought here a very good one, the most beautiful that I could find, for it was of ebony, inlaid with mother of pearl. She doesn't say what happened to it or how it got spoiled. Perhaps she trod on it. Perhaps she sat on it, which is something I live in fear of doing, since I have a living room, as you can imagine, where there are, most of the chairs are occupied by guitars. It's very easy to do. These are very light and fragile instruments. Anyway, it was lost and destroyed, but you can tell that it was a fairly elaborate piece of the best Parisian work, and that would have been good, as we know from surviving instruments. Well, the principal sources for tracking goods that were legally, as opposed to illegally, imported into Stuart England by merchants as opposed to private individuals, like Lady Sussex, whom we just heard from, the principal sources for finding out are, of course, the various customs records, notably the books of rates that list the goods coming in and going out uh, so that the port officials could estimate the duty to be paid according to some authoritative standard. Well, as I mentioned in the first lecture of this series, guitars under their old name of Gittern appear in these official lists for the first time in 1558, and I argued then that that was by no means a coincidence. But in the books of rates, the Gittern appears for the last time in the volume for 1608. 
and the word guitar never appears thereafter. So the old name vanishes and the new name never comes in. Well, the consequences, I think, are apparent in the prices charged for guitars in the 1640s and 50s compared with those of the mid-Tudor period. For the 17th century prices are really much higher, really much higher than the rate of inflation would lead you to expect insofar as we can calculate it accurately. Suggesting, I think, that a fresh but narrowed supply, too slender to be taxed, bringing in more consistently high-quality instruments was what was now going on. It seems that private individuals were buying on their own account, like Lady Sussex, and merchants were importing I beg your pardon, small numbers of instruments, together with gloves, fans, pictures, prints, garments, furniture, and all the other things that flowed daily into the Dover warehouses as the ships docked from overseas. Well, now I'd like to quote an author whom you might not expect to hear mentioned in this context, the novelist and poet Thomas Hardy. A remarkable artist, it seems to me, not least because he's one of the few people in the history of English literature that I can think of who have equal renown, both as novelists and as poets. There aren't many of those. In one of his short stories, which I think is some of Hardy's best work, as it happens, we all know the famous novels like Tess and Jude, but some of the short stories I think are very fine. He describes how it was one ideal of Victorian education to, and I quote, go away and travel and see nations and peoples and cities and take a professor with you and study books and art simultaneously with your study of men and manners. Not until the reign of Victoria, I think, do correct me if I'm wrong afterwards, not until the reign of Victoria did that kind of notion of education begin to seem old-fashioned. Despite living on an island, the English were not so insular as to suppose that native teachers of gentlemanly art, such as riding, dancing, and military engineering, were consistently the equal to those found abroad. But the purpose of travel, I think, having looked into this, was not just to broaden the mind. It was also, as you can imagine, to assess other nations as competitors in trade and as potential adversaries in the field with their bridges, fortified towns, and military levies. Ideally, a young person would return home from their grand tour with a full notebook, better schooled in Latin, French, and Roman history, together with some knowledge of soldierly arts such as geometry, fencing, and horsemanship, in addition to any musical skills. Now, the tutors who accompanied the young and guided their studies commonly regarded any musical pursuit as a kind of polite relaxation, a little bit like tennis. And already by the reign of Charles I, some travellers were seeking masters of the guitar abroad. One of the most interesting ones is a man called Bullen Rames, whose name Bullen, of course, is the same as the name that we, I think, incorrectly call Berlin, uh, with Henry VIII's wife's Anne Boleyn. Her name is really Anne Bullen. And in 1631, young Bullen Rames, who was related to that family, was sent abroad for his education in a classic sort of pattern. He was principally a lute player, but at various times he did cultivate the guitar. Here are some facts about him. In February 1632, we find him stringing a guitar for a friend with whom he played duets for lute and guitar. 
While uh, he was at Lyon in 1633, he hired a guitar, and by November was in Venice playing an instrument he'd borrowed regularly. March 1634 finds him buying another one at Messina before taking ship. And he spent the last few months of that year in Florence, where his interest seems to have blossomed with a new guitar on order and lessons from a certain Signor Donato, who procured also castanets at his request. And if you were here for the last lecture, you'd have heard castanets and early guitar together. Well, between the summers of 1649 and 1650, on a tour that seems to have begun really just after the execution of Charles I, an unidentified traveller kept a journal, it's never been published, of his residence at Saumur in the Loire Valley. He recorded the names of his various teachers in a notebook, which is now in the Bodleian Library at Oxford, where, where I saw it. He lists old Mr. Hubert for fencing, Monsieur Dubresse for singing, Mr. Deloigne for the guitar, Mr. Oldberg for the Latin tongue, and Dupuis for dancing. So there you have the range, really, of polite skills that a young man might expect to study with continental masters. Fencing, singing, the guitar, Latin, and dancing. Fencing, I think, is considered less as a sport than as a means to, for a young man to defend his honour should it be impugned. Five years later, we find the po politician and diarist Sir John Rearsby passing his time at Blois, again in the Loire Valley, and I quote, learning the language, the guitar, and dancing. Others sought the teachers of Paris and might combine a business trip with a few lessons if they could. Now, you might imagine that 17th century manuals of how to learn French or any other language are just about the dullest thing in creation. That's what I thought. How wrong I turned out to be. Some of the best sources I've ever found for the history of the guitar in the 17th century in England are in manuals to teach people uh, foreign languages in the conversation sections. So there's a dialogue in the true advancement of the French tongue from 1653, and you have a part of it on the second page of your handout. This is by Claude Moget, The True Advancement of the French Tongue, 1653. It shows a, a gentleman who has, in the conversation, who has disembarked at the port of Dieppe. He then passes on to Rouen, in Normandy, down the, the Seine, of course, the great center of Anglo-French commerce. And he stops at the English inn there. This is all in the conversation, all this information. He stops at the English inn there to wait for letters of instruction, then takes the coach to Paris. Once there, he briskly inquires after the best teacher of the guitar, and that's uh, part of what you have on your handout. You can see on the French, he says, Comment appelez-vous le maître de guitare? How do you call the guitar master? And he gets the reply, Il s'appelle Monsieur de Belleville. His name is Monsieur de Belleville, which is someone whom we do actually know from elsewhere. And then he goes on, which, how do you get to Blois, sir? They go by water. How much do they give? We usually give 10 sous, but a stranger shall be sure to pay 20. What is the best lodging there? And so it goes on. It's an absolute gold mine, and there are dozens of these manuals. They tend to be a little bit derivative, as you can imagine. They take material from one another, and 
I suppose we have to accept that a, a, a picture of a world assembled from phrase books and language tutors is going to look very, very strange. It's going to be a world where people say things like, could you please tie these two umbrellas together? And the sort of very odd things that you find in phrase books. Um, but nonetheless, so much of the material is externally verifiable. We know who Mr. Belleville is. We know there were guitar masters in Paris and Blois. Uh, we know that the Englishman would land at Dieppe and then travel on to Rouen, and so on. It just adds an extraordinary amount of, of color, really, to our picture of what was happening. Well, what kind of music would our English traveler have learned to play in Paris? The question is surprisingly easy to answer. Now, my, my good friend Uli is, of course, a very accomplished professional player, but you can, I think he would be the first to say that music like that is clearly designed for amateurs who have a fairly modest technical level. It's light, it's engaging, it's very intimate. This is, in many ways, of course, entirely the wrong sort of interior in which to play it. But you can see that it has a very gallant, uh, light, silvery quality to it. Well worth learning, in my view. Well, I come now to the richest seam of material, frankly, that I've ever found. And it reveals the guitar studies of an English gentry family from Buckinghamshire while they were abroad. It's the Vernies, the Verney family. Now, Sir Ralph Verney refused to sign the alliance between the English Parliament and the Scottish Covenanters in 1643. He fled to France with most of his family to avoid reprisals. So he's a, one of many civil war casualties, so to speak. Others have done the same in various circumstances during what's sometimes called the Great Rebellion. Many of them, are in fact, destined to become important literary figures or courtiers after the restoration of 1660, which of course brought the king back. People like Henry German, who gave his name to German Street, William Davenant and the poet Edmund Waller. They all went abroad to escape what was happening under Cromwell and they all eventually came back. Now, Ralph Verney settled with his wife and two of his three children at Blois, 
which you can tell keeps coming up. The Loire Valley keeps coming up. Why? Well, what do you think? The climate is much like England. I checked that on the BBC meteorological website this morning. It's true. Their weather now is much like ours today. And, of course, also, there were substantial communities of Protestants in Blois and in that area. So you could go over as an English Protestant and not find yourself engulfed by too many superstitious Catholics. What's more, and here's a third consideration that I suspect weighed quite heavily, Blois, and more broadly the Loire Valley, was reputed to have the purest form of French. There are still French people who would say that. And Verney had, of course, come with children in need of an education, which for a 17th century gentleman certainly meant educating your children in the French language. Well, during the next 10 years while he was in Blois, Verney accumulated a blizzard of papers, records of personal expenditure, invoices, bills, letters, and they show, if you've ploughed through them, and I've done, I have done so, that virtually every member, I mean every member of his family played the guitar. A single sheet of paper records his own spending, for example, during the late summer of 1649. He was on his way to Rouen for some reason, perhaps to do something commercial. And it includes one livre expended for, and I quote, guitar carriage. Now, his wife, Mary Verney, a remarkable woman who I'm going to come back to, and in some ways more interesting than him, Mary Verney also played early in 1644, at the beginning of their exile abroad. She was in Rotterdam, she'd only just got to the continent, when she received a letter from that same Countess of Sussex who may have sat on her guitar, whom I mentioned earlier. And this letter expresses the hope that Mary Verney would gain some pleasure for her guitar during the exile that political circumstances had brought upon the family. The handwriting of this letter is incredibly difficult to read. Indeed, I would say that I'd found this to be true of the handwriting of most aristocratic and upper gentry women that I've come across in 17th century sources. The men write a great deal better, and it's not much of a mystery why that is true. Their education had been much more systematic. But this is what Lady Sussex writes. She says, The guitar, I hope, will take you up much. I write, Malga being in a condition, in other words, in spite of being ill, For the present, you are, though, most convenient for to strive for cheerfulness with it. Well, in 1647, Mary Verney was back in England. It fell to her, not to Ralph, her husband, who couldn't come home because he would have been imprisoned by the Cromwellian authorities. It fell to Mary, as it fell to many other women of character in the Civil War period, to come to England and sort out the sequestration of their home which the Cromwellian regime had uh, imposed on them. So it was, it was her doing the work. She was still playing the guitar, or so her husband, Ralph, hoped. He wrote to her on that very subject, tapping a vein of humour that I think you'll agree has not aged very well. This is what he wrote. But for your guitar, if you have forgot any one lesson, nay, If you have not gotten many more than you had, truly I shall break your fiddle about your head. Therefore look to yourself and follow it hard and expect no mercy in this point. 
I should say that when you actually read through the letters that this husband and wife sent to one another, they are very loving letters. And they clearly were a very strong couple. They'd have to be, you might think, to tolerate humour like that, which must have seemed slightly boisterous even in the 17th century. And it was very affecting to read through the letters in sequence and eventually, of course, Mary dies. Unexpectedly, she falls ill and dies. And Ralph is really absolutely devastated by that. Well, in the, in the autumn of 1646, a certain Edmund Brown, about whom I know nothing else, perhaps you do, acting as an agent for the Vernies, was in Paris to pursue an order for a guitar placed by Sir Ralph. Now, the single sheet on which I found Brown's letter to Verney surviving offers a unique record of an English gentleman during the Civil Wars placing an order for a guitar with a Parisian instrument maker. It could have been the best one of the period um, for Bohm. This is how uh, Brown writes. He says, I have been with the guitar maker, and he tells me the guitar shall be ready for Tuesday next. He will scarcely believe, but the measure you gave me is longer than the guitar you bought of him. He would have had some part of his money in hand, but I told him, my condition was only to pay him when I saw the guitar well made, according to the bargain. So you can see the poor maker wanted something up front and wasn't going to get it. Well, the instrument was finally delivered in the first week of December and registered in the accounts as an expense of 36 livres, together with an extra payment for cloth to serve as a wrapping. Now, by the spring of 1647, Sir Ralph Verney's son, Edmund, or Munn, as he was called in the family, was receiving dancing lessons from a Monsieur André, who was also a guitar teacher. And in a letter to Mary Verney, still in England, Ralph suggested that Munn's dancing lessons should in fact be cancelled until the winter, and the money diverted to his study of the guitar. Here's the letter. It's not very long, but I think it's worth reading complete. This is Ralph writing to his wife. Now, if you like it, and that you see you are likely to settle things well in England, I would convert this one-hour charge for Munn's benefit only, and have André come every day to teach him the guitar and to sing to it. For the lute is so tedious a thing. Yes, that is what he says. So tedious a thing that I doubt, unless he made it his whole business, he would never play well. But this he may do, and not neglect his Latin, and also learn to sing with it. But this will be dearer, for André, as you know, hath five florins a month, and the other, I believe, I might have for three florins, but then he teacheth not to sing. Well, Verne's remarks about André's teaching and fees show, I think, what could lie behind the, the common observation by now really nearly a century old that the lute was losing ground to the guitar. Here, it's a matter of time and money. The study of the lute is so arduous, which it's so hard. I'm sure Uli, as a professional lutenist, would back me up on that. The study of the lute is so arduous and hard that the novice must make it his whole business in order to succeed. And there, of course, we have the secret of the 17th century guitar's popularity. It could yield results much more quickly 
to people of limited ambition or perhaps limited talent. Its music is often insouciant, light, not perhaps sometimes especially demanding, though we are coming to some more demanding music at the end of the lecture, whereas the lute is so tedious a thing. Well, when Mary Verney got that letter in England, she agreed, and this is Mary Verney's reply. I like your motion very well of teaching Mum to sing and play on the guitar, for tis a great deal of pity he should lose his time now he is so young and capable of breeding. Mum must learn to play the guitar and sing. When she says he is capable of breeding, of course, she means he is capable of being bred and bred up. Though Mun was at this time of an age where he could father children, and as a young man, I imagine he thought much about the procedure whereby that might come into, come into pass. Well, the lessons went ahead on the new basis, and in July 1648, Ralph wrote to Mun with the news that he'd placed an order for yet another guitar. But Mun was only to have it if he showed signs of progress with the old one. The dealer in this instance was André, the dancing master and guitar teacher, and this is Ralph Verney writing to his son in a way that perhaps is rather difficult to speak to children now. Child, I have taken order with the guitar master to send me a fine guitar for you when I send for it, but first I will see whether you deserve it or not. For if you have not studied it hard in my absence, a worse shall serve your turn, and therefore I would not buy one here till I have heard you sing and play. Well, Ralph Verney's accounts for March 1648 give a clue to the kind of um, material, I think, that he expected Munn to be playing. They record that Verney purchased a book of chansons nouvelles à danser, new songs for dancing for Munn, his son. Now, there are various collections, French collections of the period, that include songs à danser, little simple and very beguiling melodies to dance to, and I suspect that Verney perhaps had bought a, a manuscript collection containing arrangements of some of these for guitar. Such arrangements were certainly made, and here is one. Robin est d'humeur gentille. There's just one final letter 
I'd like to quote you from this treasure trove, really, of the Verney archive. And that in the spring of 1650, and so towards the end of his residence in France, Ralph Verney took in, the hand, in hand the education of his niece. And he wrote to the child's mother, rather illuminatingly, suggesting how he thinks her education should proceed. And he insists that she learn the guitar by book. And you remember how that theme occupied me a little earlier. For though it was expensive to secure such lessons, he says, it was a waste of the lesser charge to have a child taught by ear alone. And this is Ralph Verney's letter. If you intend they shall reap any benefit from this voyage, keep them out two years more at least. For less than three years will do nothing considerable with children of their age. They learn the guitar by book, and so they must sing too. For if they are taught only by the ear, they will sing as parrots speak, by rote only, which is not worth a rush. Therefore, I pray, let them learn by book, and though it cost them more time and money, they will not repent it. Well, there was one especially influential Englishman who toured widely, of course, in Western Europe, but not as a matter of choice. He was not on a grand tour. This is someone called Charles Stuart, who was heir to the throne of Great Britain, and who spent nearly 15 years, of course, of exile abroad from the mid-1640s until his restoration in 1660. He was moving from place to place when he saw an opportunity to make an alliance or when he became a political liability to his hosts. And the archives, the private archive of the king at this particular period, before he came back for the restoration, ended up, to mention Thomas Hardy once more, in the town that Thomas Hardy calls Casterbridge, that is to say Dorchester and Dorset, through a series of transfers connected with various aristocratic families. So it was a very pleasant experience, as you can imagine, to take a trip out to Hardy's Casterbridge, a great admirer of that, that novelist, and spend a couple of days looking through the king's privy purse accounts in the years just up to the time when he became, when it was clear to him his fortunes were changing and that he could come back as king. Well, from October 1651 to July 1654, Charles resided at the French court. But his unpublished household accounts, as I say, for various periods in the later 1650s, just coming up to his restoration, show him moving between Aachen, Brussels, Cologne, and various other cities and towns. Really is, I mean, if, of all the archives that I've looked at that seem fascinating, I must say this one perhaps was particularly so. I mean, by the standards of a 17th century king, he was living in penury just about able to pay board wages to a small retinue and striving, as you can imagine, to make an impression on local dignitaries with plate and linen that was either borrowed or, if it were his own, could be inventoried on half a page, as the accounts show. He was very poorly placed, Charles Stuart, to turn his exile into an educational journey. For a time, the archives show, he employed masters to teach him Italian and Spanish, and although he did buy, and I quote, a little harpsichord for his own use, there's little in his accounts to suggest 
that he wished to acquire any practical skill in music. But by 1660, Charles had acquired a guitar. The accounts of his personal expenditure for 1659 to 60, so really right on the verge of coming home, include a payment of 50 pounds for a guitar and 18 tennis rackets purchased in Paris and then sent to Brussels. These payments relate to events in the winter of 1659 when Charles was spending several weeks at the chateau of his mother, Henrietta Maria, uh, near Paris. So Charles must have bought the tennis rackets and the guitar through a servant or some other agent since he wasn't welcome in Paris himself. The payment shows that consignment was then sent to Brussels, presumably the Kudenberg Palace, where he was a guest. A month later, the great diarist Samuel Pepys will be deputed to carry the king's guitar, perhaps the very instrument mentioned in the accounts, from the English coast to Whitehall upon Charles's return to the bells and celebratory bonfires of London. And that's where my next lecture will take us. Someone else who came over with Charles was quite simply the most famous guitar virtuoso of the day, Francesco, or Francisco, as you prefer, Corbetta. He resided in London for the next 20 years on and off, so from 1660 through to about 1680. He died in 1681. He was internationally famous and clearly had a special sort of relationship with Charles Stuart, who lavished a number of presents on him, giving him a, uh, an embroidered, sorry, giving him an, an engraved image showing himself, uh, gave him a pension and so on. And I suspect that Corbetta, who was never part of the standard salaried uh, staff of musicians, was a kind of special sort of domestic servant and had, a, as I say, good access to the king and played perhaps while Charles was relaxing or indeed gave Charles lessons. That, I think, is very likely. Charles, after all, had bought a guitar. It had to be repaired sometime in the 1670s, so he was playing it and he was perhaps getting lessons from Corbetta. So that means that for about 20 years, the best guitar playing to be heard anywhere in Europe was in Whitehall, not Milan or Paris, but in Whitehall. So while we've heard a great deal of music for amateurs in this concert, in this, this concert, in this lecture, I thought we'd end with a piece by Charles II's court guitarist, Francesco Corbetta, which is a different sort of thing altogether. And it raises the curtain on my next lecture when I very much hope to see you, which will be about the guitar and the restoration court. Thank you.